Welcome to the EPP podcast on the rights of the child. Today we're looking at the issues of cybercrime and digital literacy. There's been a big push at EU level to go digital. The incredible online tools at our disposal have helped us through the pandemic, not least through online schooling, and will play a big part of the economic recovery and future jobs. But the online world brings with it its own challenges, especially for younger users. Much of the internet is not a very child-friendly place, and while most responsible parents implement child safety locks on access, more could be done to protect the most vulnerable. The most alarming and terrifying danger children face is from online child sex abuse. The dark web has allowed networks to proliferate in exchanging this material, and social media sites can often be a gateway for grooming vulnerable children. But there are other more day-to-day -day difficulties encountered by children on the internet, for example cyberbullying or poor self-image. We want future generations to be able to take full advantage of the opportunities presented by digital technologies, and this means teaching them how to protect themselves, but also how to navigate the online world critically so they don't become prey to disinformation or conspiracy campaigns. Digital or media literacy is one way to give them the tools they need. To discuss this today, I am joined by MEPs Francis Fitzgerald and Sabine Verheyen, and from Europol, the Head of Operations of the Cybercrime Unit, Fernando Riz Perez. Thank you all of you very much for joining us. I'm going to start with a question that uh, I will ask each of you to answer, which is what are your biggest concerns with children's use of the internet and why are the current safeguards in place not enough? Francis, perhaps you could go first. Well, thank you. As you say, we have this wonderful opportunity to use the internet, to learn from it, to communicate better. But I do have concerns and I think they focus on two areas. First of all, from a parent's point of view, uh, really controlling what a younger child can see and how much access they have to the internet at home. That, that's a real issue that a lot of parents struggle with. We read about it day in, day out. And also about some of the content that's available on the internet and the access to that. So I think we need to work with with parents so that they can put in place better safeguards for their children, such as only allowing them online when they are with them, or better yet, to limit what a child can view online through filters and website blocking. And of course, it's all about being age appropriate. So education is really important. Parents also now, I think we all need to think about what we're putting up online, especially during COVID. There's been so much exchange of photographs and wanting to connect in online with family and friends, but just be wary about how they might be used for darker purposes later on. And then the platforms. I think we're all expecting more from the platforms. We have to balance the right to free speech and freedom of expression, of course, but we've got to be really careful about what we are exposing people to. So more and more engagement with the platforms so that really very bad content can be taken down very quickly. Thank you. Uh, Sabine, what are your particular concerns? I think what, what was shown also uh, during the pandemic uh, is uh, that more and more children uh, are uh, uh, hours and hours in front of, the, of, of their screens, hours and hours uh, in the internet. And as they mainly are uh, technologically uh, much more empowered than their parents, uh, they can circumvent uh, protection uh, uh, 
programs and other things, and parents don't even know what's what's possible. And I think that's the reason why I say we need a holistic approach. Uh, we need the education of the children, not even in the technical questions. They are quite good in this, uh, but uh, what it means from the societal, from the psychological, and from the security side. Uh, and what we also need is to have the parents and the teachers better educated in this field so that they really can cooperate with the children and their competences they have, especially when they are a little bit older. And what we also need, I think, is that we have uh, better protection software already pre-installed on the, on the devices so that it's also easy for parents which are not educated well in digital questions, which don't have the um, uh, digital literacy and media literacy, that they uh, have easy ways to protect their children. Uh, I think that's also very important, and it's not always that we have it by design. It's it's, it's really important that we do more uh, on this and also to raise the awareness. And what was also shown during the pandemic is that uh, children are not just suffering from online uh, challenges and, and online uh, dangers, but also that, that children are really under threat also with violence uh, at their homes. And I think um, there we also need possibilities, uh, safe uh, spaces where they can also access uh, with their concerns and, and their threats uh, online. And I think we can, we should, we need also more helplines for children or for youngsters uh, if something is, is going on in the curing. And Fernando, from a law enforcement perspective, what are your biggest concerns? Following what Sabina and Frances have mentioned, I think we know that currently children they have easy access to the internet in a very early stage. And that's not bad. The internet is great. They have access to a large amount of information and content. But we have to also recognize that an important part of the internet is, is not a suitable place for children. And we have to stress that many of these children, they have unsupervised access to the internet. And that poses an important uh, risk. Then it's important to, to, when children access the internet, hand by hand with this access, they have to, to be equipped with the proper skills, educational maturity to understand and react to this risk. We can work together with the industry, we can work together with the educators, but in the end, children, they have to be able to make their own decisions and identify these risky situations when this content is not suitable in order to react. We, we have seen, I have seen recently, a, a, an awareness campaign raised by the Internet Watch Foundation when you see a child uh, using a laptop. And they say, look, and, and, and that's very true. The, the laptop is a window for the child, for children to access the Internet. But likewise, it's a window for the rest of the world to access your children's room and to look at your, at your children. And that's an important uh, risk. Child sexual offenders are very much aware of, of this. They try to uh, access environments where children are uh, operating, where they try to, to establish relationships with them and, in, and infiltrate these, these environments in order to build to access to these children. This is something we have seen in the frame of the COVID pandemic in the early stages when we monitor the activity. We have monitored places, forums where the child sexual offenders operate. And this is something that they have mentioned. Look, now with all this tele-education, there will be more children online. There will be more children uh, available. So this is for us, child sexual offenders, a very good opportunity to find more victims. And this is something that we have seen, they have written in, this, in these forums. So indeed, we have to do more and we have to do it 
bit better. And this is a responsibility of, uh, of all the areas in the society, not only law enforcement, but also civil society, policymakers, educators, academia. This is something we all have to contribute to mitigate. Well, let me follow up. I mean, obviously, child sex abuse is a crime no matter where it's committed. And obviously, you're mentioning the ways in which children are more vulnerable, I suppose, even thinking about connected toys as well. Um, but what is about the online networks that make it more challenging to find and bring the perpetrators to justice? Child sex offenders are very much aware on the, the, the activity of the law enforcement community in order to identify and rescue victims. So they are... Um, they, are, uh, they implement strong operational security measures in order to avoid being identified. They use anonymization techniques and they use encryption also to, to hide their traces and to hide this, the, that, the, the evidence that we could use to identify them. In the past, the child sexual offenders uh, were not very technically savvy, but now with the, the technical developments, it's very easy for any uh, offender to access to these technologies, and you don't you don't need a high level of technical understanding to implement these measures. So therefore, it's available uh, for uh, for all of them. We have seen also how in certain areas that it's extremely complicated to investigate, not only the use of the, of the forums in the dark web or, or the, that, that they can use to operate with limited capacity to identify them, also the, the phenomenon of live streaming of child sexual abuse. Uh, this is a communication between two offenders remotely, one of them abusing the child, the other one watching the abuse, telling them the abuse of, well, I want you to do this or that to the child. This is a connection between two criminals, and, and it's very complicated to investigate unless there's a recording or there's an evidence of these uh, live sessions. So we ho in this case, for example, we have to work with, uh, with payment processors because these offenders pay for these sessions in order to identify and flag these, these sessions. And this is just an example on how difficult these kind of investigations are. In this case of live streaming abuse, we have we know that the, the average age of, of, of the, the victims is, are uh, girls around 13 years old or even lower. So these, indeed, these investigations are becoming uh, more complicated and it requires, uh, in order to be successful, a, a combination of traditional law enforcement techniques like undercover activities, but also a good understanding of the technology and especially international law enforcement cooperation. All these investigations are international. We are connecting criminals around the world and you need a strong law enforcement international cooperation to be successful. Absolutely. Um, Sabine, both yourself and Francis mentioned blocking websites that disseminate child abuse material, and it's obviously a way to dampen the effect. But is there also a risk that it can mask the problem, that you block one site and criminals just migrate to another site and they move around very quickly and it's difficult to track them? I mean, there's also concern about legitimate sites offering support can sometimes get blocked by accident because some of the filters aren't sophisticated enough. They just see some words and block the whole site. Is that something that, that, that you think is a concern? I think it's very important uh, that we have uh, uh, several approaches on this. If content is once uh, detected and uh, identified as child abuse content, it has to be taken down at the source. Uh, uh, that would be the best. If I cannot take it down uh, from the service, if I don't have access to the service or to the pro service providers to, to really to take down that content, you just have the possibility to block it. Uh, but what is important is also to have me uh, mechanisms so that we have uh, the possibility to automatically detect once identified content in the question of notice and takedown and notice and stay down. 
And I think these actions are very important, that we have these stay-down mechanisms uh, for, for uh, once-identified pictures uh, and, 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 and films. What we never could reach, and I think that is, uh, or what is diff more difficult to reach, are these um, uh, spaces in the, in the dark net. Uh, where you couldn't cannot uh, enter as easily, and also with the uh, encryption uh, mechanisms, it's not as easy to 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 detect these things and also to block or to to delete these things. And there we need better personal, better better uh, stuff. Um, uh, not the stuff. The stuff is good, but we need more stuff uh, to do that work. Uh, I think on the European level, um, we already did a lot in the last years, but I think there is still not enough that can be done and we need very strong cooperation. It must also be very fast uh, uh, that we that we uh, can take down this content because uh, if you have in the public sphere um, content that uh, shows abuse of children, even if it's several years old, it always is a replication of that abuse in the psychology of these uh, victims. And uh, I think that is the reason why I uh, I'm not a friend of uh, the honeypot idea, like uh, it is in the U uh, United States, where you keep uh, misuse material online just to, uh, uh, to, to have a possibility to catch those who are watching these movies. That's a question uh, which, appro which approach we do, but I think we need to protect those who were abused once, because if you if you see it, it, it's not just a picture, it's not just a movie, it's a person that stands behind. And sometimes uh, uh, it's, it's always again repeated and repeated and mm -hmm. repeated, perhaps not physically, but psychologically. It's, it's really a mass for, um, for, for these uh, girls and boys and uh, former children, sometimes meanwhile adults. And I think we have to do a lot more also to protect the victims there. Francis, uh, part of the problem is that the internet is international and much of the material is hosted in places like the Philippines or, or, or further afield that we've, are difficult to reach, as Fernando said. What can the EU do from a legislative and enforcement point of view? Well, first of all, it's to recognise the seriousness of this issue so that we do have to work on it at a really at a, an interconnected level across the globe. I mean, a multilateral approach is necessary. No doubt about that. We can't solve it alone. But I was Minister for Justice in Ireland and I was very impressed by the work that was being done, for example, by Europol and Interpol in making links and building networks. I could see that um, where, you know, disturbing material was hosted in one country. Um, they have the tools and the relationships to tackle it with global partners. And that's very very important. Um, and I think we have to come really look at bilateral relationships and agreement and multilateral treaties and even trade agreements. You know, why not? You look at the criteria like the exchange of data, where data is hosted. Why can't that be part of trade agreements as well? So we've got to elevate this issue up to a very high level so that it is dealt with wherever we are making uh, multilateral agreements, that this is part and parcel of what we need to discuss because the consequences, both economically, socially and psychologically, uh, can be very extreme. So it's an important issue. And as we become more and more uh, used to the online space and are using it for more and more things. And as you said yourself, uh, Jennifer, at the beginning, um, that 
you know, during COVID, we've seen how critical digital literacy is. So this is another very important part of trying to tackle it globally. We, we've learned COVID can't be tackled on an individual basis. We know we've got to work together. It's the very same with digital and online content. We have to work together. And also, I think at a national level, we can criminalise online grooming, for example. I've done that when I was Minister for Justice. You know, you can criminalise those um, efforts to groom children online uh, in your own country and then reach out to other countries with that legislation under your belt, really. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, Fernando, I, I want to talk just very briefly about encryption because this is an ongoing debate. It's one way to attacking these criminals to get through to them uh, if we break strong encryption. But then, of course, we need strong encryption for other things like banking and so on. Do you see a third way or something that might balance these two needs? Yeah, yes, Jennifer. Uh, let me start by saying that encryption is good. We need encryption. We need encryption to preserve our privacy, and that's something that's good. And obviously, criminals uh, also misuse technology and misuse encryption for the criminal activities. I think it's important here to make a distinction between uh, what is encryption on related to data at rest. When you go to a house search, you arrest a criminal in this computer, there is a file, a container encrypted. And then we need to access this container because there we know there's, there are evidence of could be child sexual abuse or other criminal activities, and we need to access this container. Imagine that in the front of this house, this house search, we find a safe made of steel, and we need to open it because we need to know the criminal is hosting their evidences for the criminal procedure. We have to open it. And that's that's something we Europol is supporting, the law enforcement community. We have recently launched our decryption platform in order to access these containers. And then a different thing is the data in transit, in the communications. That, that, that's a different uh, scenario. And this is also, as I said, necessary for uh, communications. But uh, with the implementation of end-to-end -end encryption, we face a problem, and the, the, this encryption is good for for the society, but it's also uh, exploded by, uh, by criminals in order to hide their communications. And the lawful interception of communication has always been a fundamental tool for the law enforcement community to investigate. We do not find a way to find a balance between the, 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 the right to encryption and the need of the law enforcement community in the frame of a judicial investigation to access this communication, then we are risking our society because we are taking from the law enforcement community a very important tool for uh, for investigation. So we have to find this balanced solution that you referred to, uh, Jennifer. This is a question of uh, talking with policymakers, with uh, the industry, law enforcement community, in order to find this balance. I'm sure there's a, a proper way to find it and a proper balance to find uh, this solution. Moreover, we cannot simply leave this decision in the hands of the of the private uh, industry with the impact it has in our society. If we, uh, you know that in the frame of the, the new strategy to fight child sexual exploitation, the EU Commission is working at the moment, they are considering the possibility to, to, to request the private industry to flag uh, the child abuse situations. If we impose this 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 obligation in the future, could be that to the to the industry we have to give them with the means to do it. We have to to simply find a way to do it, preserving the privacy. So it's an in, in, in important debate, but I'm positive that we will be, we will be able to find this balanced solution covering both the right to privacy and the needs of the law enforcement community. Thank you. I certainly hope so, but I know it's a it's a long and ongoing debate, one that we will probably pursue long beyond today. 
Turning now to sort of other issues beyond the child sexual abuse. Sabine, we, we, this is a real world issue as well. We see things like uh, Francis mentioned, criminalising online grooming, but we have cyber stalking, explicit images being shared without consent that doesn't necessarily rise, rise to the level of criminal. We see things like cyber bullying. So what can we do to help vulnerable children? What additional support can we give to victims? I think what is very important there is to uh, empower the young children themselves. Uh, first, uh, to make them strong enough to say no. Very often uh, they are not able when they are online in a chat with someone they don't really know and there is a request for something, uh, they are not strong enough to say no. So uh, in the education we have to do much more. And that is what I meant already in the early beginning of our, our podcast here, uh, that I said we have to teach the teacher, we have to raise awareness in the education systems, and not just for the older ones, but also for very small children already. There are uh, There is already a very uh, good toolbox existing, but it must be used, uh, and uh, the teachers must, must also be teached in these questions. So media literacy uh, and digital literacy is uh, a core point to uh, protect young children, uh, uh, and to, to raise cybersecurity and uh, to do something about uh, cyber threats. Also to inform them uh, not just about sexual harassment or about uh, uh, grooming or about uh, um, uh, bullying on the internet. It's uh, also, I think, a very important issue to discuss these in classrooms together because in the past we always had that's so not nice acts on the on the on the on the playground or uh, in the schools against each other but it is a difference if i do it just between two or three or four in a small group in the school or if i do it online where everyone can access these things and i think these awareness raising these to make clear what a difference it makes that you can destroy lives uh, with such things um, and and uh, uh, when I take a look uh, that the number of, of, of uh, youngsters, uh, young people and children um, who um, commit suicide uh, is raising out of these uh, cyberbullying issues, uh, I think uh, there we have to do a lot more. And uh, I think the, the uh, what we also have to do is when there is an identification of such content which was not uh, put online with the consent of the person itself. We need uh, um, mechanisms of take down structures and uh, that such content also can stay down then and that the platforms also get a responsibility that if there is a detection of uh, content that uh, results in cyberbullying, that, uh, and they are aware of this, uh, that they have also the, the task to, to put it out of the whole system, uh, also when it is shared, that they, that they take it out. Uh, I think we need the support, we need the cooperation, but we must uh, uh, have guidelines also for the platforms, for the social networks, the social media, um, that we uh, make guidelines on the political level, but uh, that we also uh, bring them more into responsibility also for such things uh, like harassment, like um, uh, cyberbullying, like everything that can uh, uh, be to the detriment of, of young people. And that is something we also do in the DSA or where we try to do uh, to do that also in the DSA, where we give also more responsibility to the industry, but don't let them alone decide what's going on and what's not. 
Well, Francis, I want you to pick up on that as well, and um, particularly with regard to cyberbullying. What sort of responsibility do the platforms need to take and whether or, or is self-regulation enough in this regard? Are the big internet gatekeepers doing enough? Absolutely not. No doubt about it. I think we can all agree that self-regulation has not worked. And actually, I think many of the platforms are calling out for some guidance about how to balance the right to free speech and freedom of expression with managing hate speech and cyber violence. It's a huge issue and it's not for the companies alone. It's clearly for legislators. It's for society between freedom of expression uh, and getting the right balance. Uh, but platforms have to li live up to what is already laid down in regulations, like preventing dissemination of terrorist content online, for example, meant to take it down within an hour. Let's make sure they do that. But, you know, we also have to be conscious that many of the people working on the platforms are dealing with psychologically very traumatic material. So we have to support those people as well. But clearly, you know, this is all about digital literacy, dealing with fake news. Um, this is a challenge, you know, for both adults and children. And I think, like always, education is the key. Digital literacy is the key. But also the Digital Services Act is, go is very important. And I think the platforms realise now it's about a partnership with the legislators. They're going to have to be far more careful. It was the Wild West. There's no doubt about that. We've got to move away from that. It's too powerful a tool to leave it there without legislation that protects people from very harmful content. And such content that is so serious that it's really not about freedom of expression. It's abusive. Uh, Fernando, I wanted to ask you whether there might be times where cyberbullying uh, actually crosses the line over into being a criminal matter. Yeah, indeed, that's something that, uh, that could be the case. And that's why we need to review the different conducts that can be criminalized. And that we have to constantly uh, keep this legislation updated to new behaviors that could be uh, could become a criminal activity. I will say that uh, in this area, uh, the Commission is active looking into this. And I, uh, but also we have to admit that we have not done our homework properly. And I remember that in in, the, in 2011, we the, the directive against child sexual abuse was published. This is 10 years ago. However, in 2019, the Commission had to open an infringement procedure against 23 member states who didn't transpose the, the directive properly. So we have this good to review, to keep updated, but we have to admit we have to do better to implement the tools that we currently have in, in, in our hands. So that's that's on, on, on one hand. And regarding the... Yeah, the, uh, the question that have we done enough in, a, in, a, in, the, in, the, in the voluntary uh, implementation of measures to prevent child abuse material by the industry, I will have to highlight that in 2016, more than half of the child abuse material hosted globally was in Europe, was hosted in Europe. In 2019, two-thirds of the child abuse material hosted globally was in Europe. So therefore, we have to do something. Definitely, we are not doing well. We have to do something to identify where the problem is. Why is Europe the largest hosted of child abuse material in the world? That's something that has to be tackled. And that's something that has to be done. Uh, if, the, if the industry is not doing it on a voluntary basis, we have to intervene and, 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 and request them to do it. And that's what they, I expect the new strategy on on child, uh, fighting child uh, sexual exploitation, the Commission is working on, will tackle these problems. 
Thank you very much. Um, Francis, just to, to, as we wrap up, I'll ask a few questions. I wonder about the other harms that are faced by children online. For example, we often find that social media networks lead to poor self-image, particularly with, with girls and teenagers. So how can we counter this with resilience? Is this more about a, a training in schools? Look, it's it's linked to gender equality, really. I mean, the stronger the position of women in society, uh, the more role models that young girls who are in school see on our screens, uh, online, every place, uh, women in power, women speaking out publicly. Uh, it's about self-image and it's about developing resilience. You know, resilience is a very important characteristic. We all need to develop it. You need to develop it in politics, but young girls need to develop it uh, in terms of their body image as well. And there's lots of pressure. You know, there's pressure from these idealised images that are portrayed, um, just as there were in magazines before. But I, I, you know, I would have great faith in the strength of, of young women, young girls to deal with this. But it is challenging and they need peer support. They need support from their parents. And we need to be conscious of it in terms of that digital literacy, that we need to be able to know what is fake and what is idealised as opposed to what is real. But look, at it. this is a modern challenge. Our young people are very well versed in media and in online uh, technology. But you've got to make sure they've got those pieces as well. Thank you. And now, Sabine, a final question then to you is, what do children need to understand about, for example, disinformation? At the more extreme end, as Fernando alluded to, it could even involve terrorist radicalisation of teenagers. But it's just also lead to fearful and confused young people. They don't know who to trust. They don't know what's right and what's wrong because they're getting fed so much information from so many different sources. What sort of education would help? What sort of age should we be looking at? And what concrete steps would you like to see in general to prevent the sort of harm large and small that we young people face online? First, we have to say that we have to uh, help children to identify trustable sources. That's a question of education, and that's also part in the uh, European Digital Education Action Plan that we raise also through the structures in the schools, in the different education uh, spaces. It's not just formal education, but also informal education in youth work and other things that we help young, we help young people to identify fake news, to, to help them to, to be critical, to, under, to, to support them with the critical thinking and uh, uh, compare different sources and not just believe in the first the first source they find on the internet. I think that's very important in the long term to help them to identify that. On the other hand, we are also working on um, fact-checking web pages and other things uh, to support uh, people uh, in identifying harmful content or uh, uh, fake news or disinformation. But I think what we what you cannot take away is that young children need more skills in the future to really to 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 move in a safe way uh, through the internet and use these tools, this broad open world we find there in there, and to have have a, a secured and safe uh, way to uh, to deal uh, or to 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 live with with the internet. I think what what's also important, and that's again part we discuss also in the special committee on disinformation and also in the uh, Digital Services Act, is how we can also help via a, a toolbox for for the platforms 
and to help to identify such content and also when it is harmful content to take it away. But when it comes to disinformation, we always have to be careful to balance out. That's also what Fernando said. We have always to balance out the things between freedom of expression and personal opinion and uh, disinformation. And uh, that, that it will be one of the big tasks we will have in the next months uh, to find mechanisms, to find toolboxes, to find structures, to help people to orient themselves and especially to help young people and children to uh, find their path through the internet. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all very much for joining me today and giving your insights on this important topic. This podcast has been produced by the EPP Group in the European Parliament. Please do join me for future episodes on the rights of the child when we will be discussing issues such as mental health and empowering children. Mm -hmm.